Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to Aussies Only, our weekly look at the Australian players on tour. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Aussies Only, your weekly tennis fix from an Australian point of view. Here at the first serve, all thanks to Latour Tennis. Check them out at latourtennis.com or at Latour Tennis on Instagram. Really excited to get stuck into this interview today on Aussies Only. We've got a very special guest for you. I'll let my co-host introduce him. It's Jed Zetter here alongside former pro and one of the men behind Latour Tennis, Jake Eames. Welcome to the show, Jake. Yeah, thanks again. I'm really looking forward to this week. He's had a very great career in sport. And an also very interesting journey in life. His name is Daniel Boobrus, or as everyone calls him, Boobs. How are you? G'day, Jake. Good, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. No worries. Boobs, how are you traveling at the moment? And how has this whole coronavirus pandemic affected you? Yeah, well, well look, it's actually been quite eventful, to be honest. I, um, to be honest, I haven't actually worked officially for about two and a half months because, unfortunately, just recently I got stood down from my permanent a full-time job with the Port Adelaide Football Club due to the coronavirus. Um, now, that I was only informed about three or four weeks ago, but a month prior to that, I was in the Philippines, actually, with, with the foundation. I flew back, and um, anyway, I thought I'd do the right thing and just let the club know that I was flying in from the Philippines and whether or not I need to sort of uh, self-induce uh, quarantine. And they said, look, not at this point. Um, so I said, that's fine. So I, anyway, I, I arrive into Adelaide via Sydney. Now I get a message later that night just saying, look, um, there has been suggestion that we might have to quarantine you because you've come through Sydney. So I ended up getting, um, club imposed quarantine. So I go into quarantine for two weeks from the club. I then turn up to work on the Saturday, which is round one of the AFL port. We're playing on the Gold Coast. I train the remaining squad for about uh, for about three hours, and then the following and then the following day, the Sunday, the AFL actually shut the whole competition down um, because the government earlier that Sunday morning made an announcement. And then Monday night, so the day after, I get a call saying that I've been stood down. And then about yeah, three weeks later, I get told I've been made redundant. So that obviously was quite uh, disappointing. It's been a pretty um, strange wildly crazy and um, unfortunate but also at the same time I'm pretty positive and it is what it is there's a lot of other people struggling um, job wise um, and really to be honest it's been a good opportunity for me to sort of reset and sort of put my energies into some new challenges so in some respects it's bittersweet I'd love to be working in, in football but I'm also right now coaching uh, back in the tennis so um, it's actually worked out well so Boobs really want to touch on the foundation. Well, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to really get stuck into that later on in the show. But just um, to begin with, so your career actually started at Port Adelaide as well back in 2002. 
That's right. um, you, you were helping out as a rehab assistant for about five years. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your time at the club, a period where they won a flag and made a back-to-back grand finals? Yeah, look, I, um, I started off at Port Adelaide essentially um, and surprisingly upstairs, when I say upstairs in the administration area, um, working in um, sales and marketing. Um, at that point, though, I, was, I had a genuine passion for sports high-performance coaching in particular at that time. And you've got to understand, back in the 2000s, uh, the industry of strength and conditioning professionally was only really just sort of coming online, so to speak. And so there wasn't really an established career. And whatever careers there were, only very few people had those positions. But it sort of interested me. So I um, managed to, I guess, worm my way downstairs and, and um, I guess, network and, and get to hang around the strength and conditioning coaches there at the time. And by virtue of that, I was exposed to a lot of the fundamentals of strength conditioning and just the dynamics of coaching um, and then the integration of um, high performance, strength and conditioning with high performance performance in, in AFL. So um, I had that experience for five years um, and also being able to experience an AFL grand final and, and be sort of part of that inner sanctum. Although I, was, I wasn't essentially officially in the inner sanctum, but I was certainly uh, involved um, helping where I could from a strength and conditioning point of view, whether it was rehab, whether it was running some uh, off-feet conditioning. Um, so I spent, yeah, five, almost uh, six years there. Then I was involved with the club after that because I ended up going um, and working in the state league here, the SANFL, which I guess is the equivalent of the VFL there in Victoria, um, and ran a full program there with the state league team. So the men's, uh, the seniors team there. But I was still involved with Port Adelaide, um, working on the bench at that point. And then eventually I moved into tennis and uh, started for the end of 2010, 2011. Um, I then moved into uh, a position here in SA working for the Tennis SA National Academy, which at the time had Fanassi there. Fanassi, Luke Savile, um, Jack Schapansky, uh, Brett Mousley, Lee Too, and then Alex Bolt uh, was in and out of that environment. He was obviously based in Canberra with the AOS, as was Luke Too, I guess. So I was, I was exposed to that. Um, great pull of talent very early on as they were coming through. And then from that moment on, I sort of moved more into a senior role um, and eventually moved over to Melbourne to work with the professional men's program. So that, that was sort of my early experience support that which eventually transitioned into the tennis side of things. Yeah, it's an amazing journey. And I guess from that point, you know, as a men's professional um, you know, coach of the Davis Cup team as well in terms of physical performance, um, what was some? What was the environment like there in Tennis Australia? What were the players like? You see a different side to a lot of the players because a lot of coaches see them on court and how they're performing on court, and you see that obviously off court aspect and maybe even different personalities off court than on court as well. How's that whole experience for you? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I see. I, I guess I'm positioned to see the best of both worlds. I see it from a player's point of view. And I also see it from a coach's point of view. So I guess the beauty of my role is I am sort of the medium. We are essentially based in the connection between the athlete and the coach. So in my respects, we need to understand the player in terms of what their capacities and capabilities are and more importantly, their potential and where we can actually get those gains from, from a, uh, from a performance output, output point of view. And then I guess the relationship we have with the coach there is just to understand what they're trying to achieve with the player from a tactical, um, physiological, if not um, psychological um, point of view. So I guess it's really our role to sort of, I guess, 
filter some of that information through, combine that with our understanding of strength and conditioning, understand the nature of the player, personalities. And yes, players are different, particularly when they're with us. I guess it's partly because they're not as pressured or they don't feel as pressured working under our our supervision because we're not really there to pressure them into performing. Um, and we don't, well, I, I never really spoke a lot about the tennis side of it. I think that for me was, whilst it was good to talk about some things that we're trying to link some of their strength conditioning to, but most of the time it was just about what they were doing right there in that moment of um, whether that's just um, trying to elicit more intensity, more quality, getting them to concentrate more on what they're doing as far as their ability to, to get organised movement strategy, all that sort of stuff. And there are times when players, you know, and we, we push players, that's what we're paid to do. We're, we we push them whilst not trying to break them. But I always tried my best to break some of the players, but I think <laughs> that's just my philosophy. And, and, and some of the guys struggle, you know. It, I tend to have a pretty high level of expectations as far as output um, standards. So I, I pushed a lot of the guys. And look, to, to be honest, most of those guys were quite resilient. Um, if I was to name a few, like Jordan was, Thompson was in particular, was quite solid. Grothy, although Grothy would make a lot of noise, but he'd do he'd do the work. To be fair, <laughs> Sav Sav was just I guess you know Sav will just turn away, he'd just turn up and do what he has to do, and, and Boldy was the same. So, and that was just to name a few of the Davis Cup um, and, and professional men's guys uh, players. And then you had probably I, I call more project players, um, and, and that point in time was was uh, Finassi. And Finassi, you got to understand, came from a diff, bit of a different background as far as his setup. So you sort of more or less case managing that role. Although I had patches here and there where I'd go and, and help him, but he had his own team. And, and then you had Nick and, and, and Tomic and that. So, you know, I, I never felt obliged to have to really be on top of those guys. It's more or less putting literally the ball in their court and let them sort of guide some of it. And so that, that's, that's a skill in itself. And I think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches will find that sometimes quite overwhelming, if not challenging. Um, and that's where you've got to have a really good relationship with, one, understanding what where they're at, two, the coach, um, and then obviously the players, I guess, entourage, if you will. So, you know, it, it's a real fine act. And that was something I think initially was a bit overwhelming, but I think with time I managed to sort of work through that. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the priority has to be in the best interest of the player. So whatever the player needed and, and whatever planning they needed and whatever we needed to work on, then, then I'd gear a lot of my programming around based on that. So, yeah, and we had a lot of fun times too, i got to say. Uh, the Davis Cup experience is always ex- exciting, as they say, what goes on Davis Cup stays on Davis <laughs> Cup, so I won't be sharing too much of that. But uh, i got to say, it was a great experience. Obviously, the boys are there representing your country. And, and from my point of view, the role that I played was very minute in, in some respects. Um, you sort of play, you play the team player role. You, you do what you can, you you, you more or less keep the players occupied from a strength condition point of view, just making sure that they follow their routines. Some have already been given programs. And then whatever additional work that Leighton or at the time Jason Stoltenberg or uh, Roach you wanted them to do, whether it's just sort of ticking over. And really, in Davis Cup size, you're not, you're not, you're not really going to gain a lot. It's more about just creating a really good environment. Mm. So that was really my outlook and on, on the Davis Cup space and working with those players. Boobs, were you always hoping to get into tennis specifically? Was that always a passion of yours or was it just sport in general? For me, I think coaching really was my passion. So sports, whatever sport, it really didn't bother me. I just wanted to honestly connect with players and just help them achieve their physical goals. 
Um, so it wasn't really who I worked with or the type of sport. I mean, initially in my earlier days, I worked in trampoline. I worked at Sassy working in trampoline and God forbid, people would be saying, why would you want to work in trampoline? That was a good experience. I uh, worked in hockey, worked in martial arts. Um, so I've worked in all various types of sports. Um, but really, and it's no different to coaches. At the end of the day, they just want to help develop players. Um, but then some are driven by, you know, wanting to get those players to the big stage. Um, and so be it. That's their motivation for me. That, in a sense, was a motivation to get players either into a grand final or, or at a grand slam or get their top 100 or qualify for a grand slam. And really, that's what excited me was to say, OK, well, here's your goals. You've set your goals. How do we do this together? And, and what's the mindset that we need to develop for you to sort of achieve that? So the answer to that really was... Yeah, I guess sports and also the individual, but quite honestly, just the philosophy of coaching and helping was really my driver. Yeah, does the philosophy change being on the road to being back home in a training block? Obviously, being on the road and traveling with players, like what kind of things are you focusing on there? Yeah, it's an interesting one because depending on what level and who you're working with, like for example, if you're working with junior athletes, very much it's about behaviour, it's about teaching a lot of the junior players independency. As you know, the circuit, particularly the lower level uh, life on the circuit can be quite intense. Um, intense in the sense that there's a lot going on, it's quite new to the players. Um, there's, there's the you know, there's, there's the issue of having to deal with travel, the, issue, the expectation of performance. And then obviously, I guess in some respects, depending on who the players, the burden of, you know, uh, managing all of that and, 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 and the finance of all of that. So I guess really from a junior point of view, it's just about teaching players to manage that while also allowing them to focus and develop on, I guess, their core business. And that's just been playing tennis. Mm. Um, and so, that, so I guess the level of input there was, was quite hands-on and you're working very closely with the players. But as you go up through the ranks and up through the levels, then it's sort of the, the off, the, I guess the circuit, uh, the tour probably changes a little bit as far as the dynamics. This becomes a lot more performance outcome based. Um, you're there to win. Um, yeah. and, and that might be, let's say if we talked about juniors, this might now be junior tra- uh, elite transition. So, you know, you had 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds that have maybe got a couple of ITF points, but are now trying to push into more of the challenge. So they're playing a lot more challenger level. So now you're into this sort of environment where there's a bit more demand physically. Mm. Um, I guess the internal pressure of, of performing now something becomes a little bit heightened, therefore the anxiety. So you're sort of managing that. And really it is about routine and getting the guys, trying to encourage the players to remain focused, but also positive. So you've got to create a really positive coaching environment as well. But making sure they still tick the boxes physically. So do their gym work and, and be quite mindful that regardless of the result that you know, we're looking at the big picture here because ultimately we're trying to get you to play longer and, and, and have a long and sustained career. And, and, you know, sometimes that can be quite overwhelming, particularly for young, inexperienced, immature players that don't quite understand that. And that's probably our role is to sort of remind them that, you know, it's a long journey, as you know, mate. Mm. Um, so you're really quite there in that transitional, like just getting enough volume and working to them so you know what we call variability and intensity um, so you're really continuing to build that base in order to get them ready for that more demanding level of the ATP circuit so with that level that in itself uh, is a complete because at the end of the day you turn up and you play and it's all about 
I guess, sustainability. Sustainability and preparedness. You're preparing the player physically, mentally, um, from a routine point of view, particularly if it's going to big Grand Slam tournaments like, let's say, Wimbledon. You've got three grass tours leading up to it. So there's still elements that you can work on, but you just got to sort of time it where you don't overcook them or overbake them. Or, and also at the time where you don't take your foot off the gas as well and you sort of... You know, you're building up to this climax of, say, for example, uh, qualies at Roehampton, you know. Yeah. And so you're starting to get guys into that mindset. Uh, and, and, your, and your discussions and your dialogues all about preparation, you know, and, and discipline. But also drawing a fine line between them, appreciating, mate, mate this, is, this is what it's all about. Yeah. You know, let, let's not put too much pressure and just be relaxed. Um, you know, there were several instances there where we solved that sort of outlook in place, had to embrace that and... and good for them and they qualified so you know i was very fortunate to see guys do the grind in the back courts of uh you know eastern europe to the main court and qualifying at roehampton so you know you sort of sit back and reflect on that and say well that, that's fantastic all of that discussion all that pain has worked and but in the essence of their career that's only really the first hurdle you know that's and, and that's the amount of work you've had to put now you've got to try and do it again the next several years so that then becomes a completely different mindset so that's sort of probably the journey and that's probably what you see at different levels and yeah you, players i think get a little bit more anxious uh, particularly if they're trying to defend points um and sometimes you know you get spoken to uh otherwise but you just sort of cop it on the chin and move on with it you, i've learned not to take things too personally but then it's also a time when you really got to put the foot down and explain them that well look mate we're here for you we've come all yeah. this way Let's let's switch on and get on there and let's just do the job. So yeah, yeah you got to have those hard discussions as well, which isn't great. And I'm not, I'm, I'm a pretty emotional bloke, so I tend to hot vent and then I'll just explode. And as some of those older guys will know, I've done that once or twice. But <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Who have you been most impressed with based off a first impression? Oh look, I thought I thought Alex Demonar when he was 16. I, I, he there was just something about him. Those that have worked with him at junior level would. would vouched for that I mean I I heard of I, I, the first time I met him I was up in Vancouver uh, Challenger and I got a phone call uh, from Pat Rafter saying look I need to go down to Washington to meet and link in with this young Alex Demonar from New South Wales now I, I heard of him I didn't know much about him I'm sort of saying well what's what I need to go down to Washington for and they said look you know uh, duty of care the coach isn't there and only his daddy's there so um, anyway, I go down there and the moment I I met him, I shook my hand and he, he was so open, he was so friendly. And, and the thing that really he was organised, he goes, uh, yeah, Daniel, I've, I've booked a call, I've, I've got a training, I've got access to the gym at three o'clock. And that immediately just, and then, then his work rate, uh, just his willingness to learn and just his focus, that really impressed me. And I thought for someone that age who was 16 at the time, I was like super impressed. Um, and you could sense a really deep desire to succeed. And it's almost like, which, you know, he was sort of thinking beyond his years because he had a real sense of purpose and clarity right there and then. And obviously, he's still quite raw mm. um, physically, but you could say, you could almost think it only really will take a couple of years and some good mentoring and guidance and just touch up on a few of his technical stuff and this kid's going to be because he had he had the qualities the, the fight um the willingness um and the dedication and, and look, you can't you can't you can't coach that stuff that that's intuitive um so from my point of view that that was 
probably he impressed me the most uh, from that level. And then, as you know, by the time he was 19, he was what top top 80. So um, so credit to him. And now he's you know top 30 in the world. So you know that that's something that I only had a very small part. In, and I'm not certainly not taking any credit for that, yeah. but to be there firsthand and witness that growth, that's the stuff as a coach you kind of think, wow, that's that's pretty cool. So here's one. The other one, I'll do. Luke Savile. I met Luke um, as a as 18 year old, and he'd already was won Junior Wimbledon, um, and just his desire then to just uh, really try and push ahead and, and make him make it into the circuit. I mean, you know, um, I can't talk for it, but. Technically, there were concerns there, which is probably well documented anyway. And it, so it was really more about just his his approach and focus to sort of stick with it. And I think that's that was a quality that I really respect because, I mean, he was under the pump. He had expectations having won Junior Wimbledon and Australian yeah. Open and then being the number one junior two years in a row. And so he had a huge amount of expectation on yeah. him. And, you know, and I, 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 I like Sav from a pure values point of view, he's, he's just respectful. And, and, and I'm not saying all the other guys aren't respectful, but in terms of just respecting the process and where he was at, I thought that was pretty cool. And so he impressed me from that point of view. And, you know, obviously now he's, he's uh, I hate to think it's not the end of his uh, highlights career, but winning the Australian Open was pretty cool. Or sorry, uh, getting to the men's doubles final with Maxi was a pretty cool achievement. And when I sort of saw that, I was, I was absolutely pumped for him. So... You know, that hard work and dedication has really paid off. And um, whether he goes and continues down the doubles path or has another crack at singles, all, all good luck to him. Yeah, I think so as well. It was great to see him uh, reach the final. It was a bit of a fairy tale story there. And I think he's only, you know, a, f- a few few things away from ticking over and getting a good run on in the singles as well. Like he does put in, put in the work. It's great to see. Yeah. You know, your experience as a developer and also like an observer of all these athletes in, in the modern game, what are some of the factors where you see athletes not fulfill their potential? Not fulfill, when you say factors as in... Um, yeah, what, what are like, some of the elements or attributes that some of these athletes currently have that haven't f- fulfilled their potential or maybe hold them back? Yeah, it's, oh, look, it's an interesting one. We can always talk about it's a product of your environment. Uh, and environment being, is there a level of um, organisation in that environment that's going to help guide and teach the player? Is that being maximised? Um, is that being sort of structured in a way that's actually conducive for them to learn? And I think that's the other thing. Players actually understanding that they've got to learn in this process. Like everything is, particularly like I said earlier, in that transitional space, junior transitional coming into the, professional circuits it's a learning experience and and I think young players in particular have, learnt, have got to learn to be patient um, and just let their game mature and, and listen to the coaches um, it, I mean we all say it as coaches it goes without saying you think but doing it versus uh, thinking about it are entirely separate things and I think that's where the challenge particularly with this generation of players in my opinion um, is, is that they just got to understand that there is a process that um, they got to trust their coaches and and they've got to have a big picture in mind and 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 have a real sense as I said before like Alex Dima have a real sense of purpose and clarity and stick with it have the patience and the discipline to stick 
with the fact that it's going to be a grind and that you've got to work on your forehand or you've got to work on your fitness or you've got to work on your movement. Um, and, and don't be dictated by short-term results either. Um, and I think the good coaches will say that. But from a strength and conditioning point, I'm, I'm very much the view of that as well. Let's not, let's not try and build up speed capacity overnight and then cook yourself and then you start tearing muscles and breaking down. I, it, mm. We've got to get the strength base into you. We've got to get your movement patterns. We've got to get your thinking. We've got to get your intent to really, um, you know, want. want. Um, and that takes time. So... I guess the overarching message of all of that is, is a, a, be patient, two, be really clear. Um, and, and clarity doesn't always come straight away. Clarity is just a, a sum of um, little goals along the way that ultimately will achieve to something that's actually uh, realistic. So I think having a realistic goal as well. And then I guess thirdly is just, just understand that, you know, you've got to live in the moment really enjoy being out there. I think, unfortunately, I've seen players lost to the game because they get so absorbed by winning and losing at such. But ultimately, you know, they got to fail first, I think. So they, they got to have a willingness to accept failure. And, and that's not easy. And that, like I said, comes back to the environment they're brought up in. How have they been taught to actually manage disappointment? Um, because that ultimately, uh, young kids of today want instant gratification and want instant success. <laughs> It's not going to happen. Right? Yeah. It's just the reality. It's no different to operating businesses. So you just got to have a real sense of patience, clarity, purpose, uh, and, and just be willing to do the hard yard. So, you know, there's a lot of messages and all of that, but ultimately it's, it's putting all those parts together, which make the sum of, uh, of a progressive and, and I think ultimately a resilient player. You mentioned there in part three, you've sort of seen, you know, players lose, sort of lose their, their passion almost, I guess. Yep. Were there ever occasions where players were, like came up to you and, you know, admitted they're struggling and potentially were contemplating giving up the sport? And if so, what do you then say to them? Yeah, oh. Well, let me be clear. I'm not a, I'm not a qualified psychologist. Uh, and it's funny, um, when you go into a sport like tennis, I think you end up becoming more of a psychologist than you do a, a tennis or a strength coach because ultimately what you're doing is you're having these behavioural type conversations. Um, and yes, I've had a lot of players come to me over the years, um, you know, and, and you know, I have that level of trust and respect. So certainly I'm not going to repeat any of the content or refer to the names, but ultimately, you know, the, the things that I identify and in all of that is just the struggle of really putting things into perspective. I think that's a hindrance a lot of the time. Um, not a hindrance, but certainly an inhibitor towards them having, I guess, that clarity. And, and that, again, you know, you're not there to sort of diagnose it. You're not there to provide um, advice. But what you are there is to provide an ear. So, and, and, and put your own personal context on it. I think that's how I've sort of managed my conversations over the years is that, Look, you know, I'm here. One, first and foremost, let them know that I'm here for them because the grind and the demands of tennis can be a lonely sport, as we all know. And, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff that a lot of people, uh, you know, that spectate won't ever understand. And as, as if you're a former player, you'd know. But, you know, there's been some really hard conversations about life, um, you know, and I've, you know, it's not comfortable conversations. And you kind of sit there, shit, I don't know if I'm even qualified to have this chat, but... Mm. All you can really do is just listen. Um, but then I sort of realised that, you know what, that's just how it is now. That's, and it shouldn't be that way. But I think, I think that also comes down to me as a coach as well, is that this is what I've got to accept as, as the demands 
of the sport because, I mean, at the end of the day, professional sports is business. It's your career. It's, you're the business. Um, so if you're not bringing in revenue and your, 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 your expenses are exceeding income, uh, has it, you have every reason to start feeling stressful. So it's about, A, listening to them and, two, sort of making sure that they've got the structures to sort of withstand some of that. And if they haven't, then that's the responsibility of us referring them to the, the services that need, whether it's psychologists or nutritionists or whatever it might be. So, you know, um, and it's also just recognising some of the behaviour too and just, you know, saying if there's a constant pattern of behaviour there uh, that the players seem a little bit off, you might just red flag it with, hey, mate, is everything okay? Look, I've noticed in the last couple of days you've been a bit flat on court, you've been a little bit temperamental. Is everything okay? You want to talk about it? And I guess really as, as a medium, and I say medium between them performing and them off the court, you know, I, I, I take great responsibility ensuring that I create a really positive environment. So I'll never, I'll never go hard on a player um, because I think that's the beauty of being a strength conditioning coach on, on the tour is that you're not just a strength conditioning coach, you're everything. Uh, for mentor to, I guess, psychologist to some degree, like mm. I said, but not qualified. Mm. So you got to you got to be able to sort of nurture and, and and a take that on yourself. But I think also that comes with a caution too. Don't take too much on as a coach. Um, and that's what I advise a lot of tennis coaches or strength and conditioning coaches or physios for that matter who who do spend a lot of time don't on the circuit. Don't take that responsibility too too much. Yeah, so I think um, overall, I think, yeah, there's a lot of players out there, no doubt, struggle. Australian players are typically pretty good, but you just got to know their behaviours and you just got to know when to sort of have those discussions, when not to. And some players just prefer to be left alone, to be honest. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, it is a different scenario when you're actually involved in those situations. You know, as a strength and conditioning coach, you're not, not just lifting weights, and as a tennis coach, you're not just feeding balls. There's so many elements. They come together. Mate, yeah, every, every time I um, you know, speak to or hear you talk, I've spoken to other mates as well, and just you know, the, the passion that you have for you know, developing players and also in sport. Um, I'm not sure if that's led to your recent, I guess, launching of the Project Six Foundation. You're the director there, an independent, registered, non-for-profit organisation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved there? Yeah, look, I... I'm going to, I won't go too deep, but look, I think to understand the context of all of that, I guess really for the listeners, it's more about understanding who I was. And, and really for me, that was a challenge uh, because I mean, how I was brought up was, was a lot different to a lot of Australians out there because I was adopted first and foremost. I mean, that's to say there, there was a lot of adopted people, but I was adopted from the Philippines, Southeast Asian country uh, when I was young. Um, I had an adopted brother. I was, I was adopted by an Australian couple who lived in country South Australia. Now were tennis, and, or not tennis, but sports fanatics. Um, and, you know, I got brought out to a small country town uh, in, in rural South Australia uh, and, and really being the only uh, Filipino, I guess, or of Asian um, descent. So, you know, I, I won't say I had my challenges because I think I had a fantastic upbringing um, and I had great exposure to sport in the country, as most South, uh, most uh, regional folk will know, that you know, sports is a huge, huge diet, a huge staple diet of of um, of recreation in um, those areas. So I was exposed to that very early, and then um, we moved to Adelaide, and then my mother sadly passed away of cancer when I was thirteen, and she already had this foundation 
uh, sorry, a charity helping and support a lot of uh, disadvantaged communities in the Philippines, particularly families, and basically raising money to uh, feed, clothe, educate. And in one instance, she raised, I think, $40,000 to bring over a, a young girl who had facial deformities to get uh, craniofacial surgery. Um, and so she raised money to bring that. And, and sadly, she passed away when I was 13. Um, my brother was six at the time. And so she sort of left with unfinished business, uh, but no doubt left a legacy in my opinion. So it was at that, that point in time, and being a young kid, you don't really process or understand a lot of that. Um, and it wasn't until years later in my early 20s that I sort of realised, A, how lucky I was, to um, how wonderful my mother was in teaching me some great values. But there was also a sense of uh, emptiness, um, and I couldn't quite figure it out what it was. But I also had this drive to say, you know, I've got to do my mum proud. So I always made it my... my um, my thought to be as positive as I could about life, regardless. Um, and they always say, you know, hard, hardship always creates resilience. And I think it's true. I, I just had to deal with that. I, yeah, there was a lot going on in my life at that point in time. And then as I sort of found this passion for sport and like I said, you know, I found the passion to help people. Um, I felt like that was the destiny that my mother had sort of try to encourage me, not necessarily in sport, but the destiny of actually getting me into a position that one day I will grow up and help people. Uh, and it wasn't until 2017 I sort of realised that even into in, in a more greater sense because um, I'd worked in sports. I was with the tennis at the time and I'd been very fortunate to sort of travel the world and go to a lot of these fantastic places and events. Um, but deep down I still felt I was missing something. I felt like I had to fulfil a promise. Um, so I struggled with that alone, and, and I think a lot of athletes will relate to this. It really was about identity, as a, whether you're a player, but for me, it was a person. Um, so in, in light of that, I made the decision because my son came home one night and asked about a photo or having a photo of me as a kid. As a baby, I couldn't produce one and said, told him that I was adopted, and that really opened up a can of worms. Um, so we made a decision straight there and then to take my son back to the orphanage where I came from with my wife for the first time in almost, what, 25, 30 years at that point. Um, and that was an amazing experience. And I won't go into detail, but that for me really enlightened me. And, and, and then that really sort of solidified my purpose. I said, right, um, I need to do something. And I think I know what it is. Um, and, and it was through sports. Um, so in 2017, I made a conservative effort and a commitment to really invest. And, and I really commit, I guess, the rest of my life now to – to doing this and, and continuing my mother's legacy, but more importantly, giving back to the community that once raised me and, and also providing opportunities and helping kids build their own identity through sports in those disadvantaged regions across the Philippines and Cambodia. Um, so that's our two regions. And I guess with that, I really wanted to embrace the tennis community um, because I know, and I'm not just saying this because we're talking tennis, but I, 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 from my experience of traveling, I've seen how much tennis can change and embrace individuals, individuals, uh, and then on a, in effect the communities uh, because it teaches individuals, you know, discipline, respect, teaches them to, you know, set goals and 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 you know if they've got the self drive to become competent and skillful, um, but also teaches the social aspects as well. Um, so that for me were the sort of the key values that I thought I could sort of derive from tennis, and and so I, I recruited some tennis players uh, the first year that we went back and ran. I guess a formal tour was uh, I took Blake Mott and a um, and Brett McClellan 
Blake might, as the listeners will know, was, uh, is, I guess, a um, professional tennis player. I took him over with me. And Brett worked for Tennis Australia as an educator, facilitator. And so we went over there and ran basically six days of um, coaching camps, workshops, coaching clinics. Uh, we, we went out to the orphanages and schools. And so really from there, that sort of started to get ball rolling. And not long after, we set up the foundation officially. Um, and the, 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 the objective of the foundation is to get our programs, Project 6 Foundation. And Project 6 Foundation, the name, Project 6 is the name of uh, the zone I was uh, adopted from. So Project 6 in Quezon City, just outside of Manila. Hence, uh, is a little homage to, to that. But ultimately, it's, I'd like to think it's not going to, I don't want it to be about my story. It's about just honouring those that are less fortunate in those regions. So... Uh, we, we sort of started to build momentum. this Last year, I took uh, Andrew Whittington, and I love Andrew. He's a t- champion guy. Uh, those that know him, is, he, he can be pretty mouthy at the best of times, but he's got a great sense of humor, big heart. Um, and I was fortunate to work with him, and we got to build a really good partnership there and relationship. So I, I've got a lot of time and respect for Andrew. Um, so I wanted him involved with the foundation. So we brought him over, and he was fantastic. And I think you know, as I said, I think by exposing those types of um, and providing those types of opportunities, it actually allows players a real perspective on life. And I think Andrew had that last year. And, and so I guess the other side of that foundation is that we try and, and, and give opportunities to players as well. So it's not just about coaches. Um, I want to try and take over a professional player each year, female or male, to give them that opportunity because I think every player has something to offer. And if they can just sort of do it unconditionally where they just come in and give everything they've got and just really appreciate and absorb the moment. I think they'll come out better for it. And I know Andrew certainly has. And so Andrew continues to help us and volunteers for us. And we'll look to uh, keep building that. So this year, well, we had planned to go back at the end of this year for the big tour. And in doing so, we're also setting up the foundation in the Philippines and we're reaching out greater lengths in Cambodia. Um, our goal ultimately is to have our programs in over 100 schools and orphanages um, endorsed by the government over there and, and, and getting the tennis community. And, and eventually, inevitably, it will also involve the broader community uh, because ultimately I don't think it should just be one sport. It's just the values of what sport drives. So whether that comes from basketball, volleyball, whatever, mm. we'll, we'll do that. So, so that's where we're at with it right now. And, and we've got Latour as one of our key partners because they clearly share the same values as us. And I just love how they go about it. And I think, and I'm not saying this because I'm talking to you, what I love about it is um, just the innovation and just the passion uh, behind the sport. I, I guess the innovation and passion is us behind helping. So there's two, two connecting uh, elements there that I really embrace. And I think that really suits suit our foundation so that's where we're at do you mind telling us a little bit about foundation one of the latest projects coach for smiles and maybe how our listeners can get involved and um and help out as well yeah coach for smiles so like i said we've ran two major tours now what we want to do now is start adding a bit of profile to that and a bit of meaning and ultimately the idea of those tours is obviously to coach and go into those orphanages and schools and deliver coaching clinics it needs to be sustainable and we want to really grow that sort of annual coaching trip where we really encourage coaches to participate and so what we decided to do was let's give it a bit of a profile some meaning and we decided well what do we generally what's generally the response when we go over the coach smiles um you know and a lot of these kids come from pretty poor impoverished areas and uh, they're, they're smiling but they even smile more when we get out there and coaching so hence we decided to name the next tour coach for smiles 
Um, we're encouraging um, female coaches or uh, physical education teachers to apply because we, we really want to embrace and, and support female coaching and we would love to get a female coach involved in our next tour, whether that happens this year or early next year. So we're running a campaign at the moment, Coach for Smiles, where A, we're trying to just give a bit of a reflection of how much coaching makes a difference. It's not always about hitting balls and trying to win matches and get rankings. It's about teaching values, using tennis and, and just really getting coaches to realise that as coaches, well, I do anyway, take great responsibility um, in, in teaching kids and I want other coaches to share that and more importantly, get the coaches to, you know, uh, give back themselves if they want to. Um, so the coach for tours, we're encouraging coaches now to give advice. We, we, we've been, um, we've had a great response from professional coaches, junior development coaches, PE teachers, all aspects that are just sharing their coaching or their tips in and around developing juniors um, with the ultimate goals that we're going to compile all this advice and put into a nice little PDF booklet that that coaches can sort of um, download at the end of the year as a resource. And then ultimately when we run the tour, we'll, we'll basically bring over a team here from Australia. We'll connect with our partners in the Philippines and, and Cambodia and we'll coach. Uh, it'll be a two-week tour, seven days, five to seven days in the Philippines, just going and coaching nonstop. And then we'll go over to Cambodia. We've got a partner in Cambodia that have a, a mission and they have a sports program and one of those is tennis. Uh, so we're going to go over there and coach tennis for a couple of days and then we'll go out into the communities, a little deeper into the communities and, and just start coaching kids out there. And, and so the Coach for Smiles Tour is all about embracing those kids, getting lots of smiles on them and getting the coaches here in Australia to really support that. So that's what we're sort of pushing at the moment. Um, and, you know, thank you to you guys for this wonderful platform to sort of talk about it. No, it's an amazing foundation, uh, awesome initiatives and some really great people. So if anyone's listening, www.p6f.org uh, to find out any more information and to follow the journey there. Booze, mate, we've got a couple fan questions for you now. Uh, oh. Number one is who's the funniest Australian player you've worked with? Funniest? Oh, I'm going to say JP Smith. He's, he's pretty quirky. <laughs> he, he says some pretty funny stuff. You've got Grothy just, yeah, Grothy just says what he says, which makes it funny in itself. Uh, so yeah, there's two blokes, yeah, pretty funny. <laughs> the next fan question, hey, Daniel, what's the craziest place that tennis has taken you to? Ah, uh, craziest place. Oh, uh, I think I went on a tour up near, uh, oh, it's actually outside China. That was pretty crazy, given yeah. what's going on now. Well, I wasn't working with Tennis Australia at the time. This actually only just happened last year. I was actually in Wuhan last year. I was with Nike doing a Nike Junior training camp and, now, Wuhan at the time probably wasn't crazy, but now given what I went through then, like going to the markets, that was pretty crazy. And then to sort of now understand what the hell's been going on is even more crazy. So, yeah, that, that's, yeah that's pretty surreal, to be honest. Have you got any um, funniest tennis story on the, on the tour? Oh. Anything popping to mind there? That I can share? <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. I might have to censor half of these. Yeah. Um, Oh, now you really... Yeah, put you on the spot there. Tough, tough same question, that uh, one. I don't think one particular... Well, <laughs> depends how you look at it. I was, again, uh, it was funny because... So we're in Aptos and I was with a bunch of Aussies. Uh, I was working with, I think, Grothy was there, Boldy, um, Kira Sandland. So we're all at this tournament. 
Now, this is more of a story about mistaken identity more than anything. So you can either look at it racially or not, but I thought it was pretty funny at the time because we all just looked at each other and laughed. And so we're sitting there. And if you've ever been to Aptos, it's at the tennis club there. Have you been there, Eamsy? No, I haven't, no. <laughs> well, it's, it's a richy snobby, I think, anyway. Fantastic site. Anyway, I was working with Groffy and we're down there in the gym and uh, I'm just stretching me out on the mat and there's this old duck on a treadmill. Two old ducks. Uh, you know, that sort of rich, uh, white, uh, you know, 70s, 80s. Retirees living in the village there, and they're sort of watching us stretch. And Grothy had his Vikings beard happening at the time. And anyway, one of them, and I'm, I had my back face to them, and Grothy's laying down looking up towards them. And one of them sort of leaned over as she's just plodding away on the treadmill and asked Grothy, Oh, you don't happen to be from Sweden by any chance? <laughs> Grothy being, Yeah, yeah, I'm from Sweden. Uh, and uh, why do you ask? Oh, your beard, your beard. So I thought, Okay, well, that's, that's okay, that's funny. We're just looking at it. And then, then, the old duck looks at me and goes, uh, and you're, and what, what sort of uh, Chinese medicine are you performing? And I'm thinking, well, this is just called a hamstring stretch. And then she had the audacity to say, oh, so are you from North Korea? Rightio. Okay. So that, whilst, whilst it's not an outlandishly funny story, but I think just the whole context of it just typified where we were at the time. So there were a lot of little moments like that. So... That's probably the cleanest, funniest moment I have <laughs> that I can share. Another fan question here. Hey, Daniel, who is one athlete you've worked with that always goes above and beyond in his rehabilitation? Rehabilitation? Uh, I think those that have been fortunate to work with James Duckworth. Um, I mean, I only had a very small part to do with James, but and knowing James's history of injuries... Um, I think by virtue of that alone, he had to do his rehab, but just his application. And I think that just shows in his performance and the fact that he's managed to, you know, endure these long rehabilitation periods and still come back and what, be top 80. And I think that just says a lot about a guy. So I really admire that. And I think without doubt, he goes above and beyond uh, his rehab, uh, only because he has to, but just, just to be able to. And I've seen guys in other sports that struggle, particularly guys who would, would have been faced with that situation. So no doubt, James Duckworth. Mate, Boob, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. You've got an enormous amount of experience, knowledge and passion, you know, for all various sports and your involvement in tennis has been amazing for everyone in the tennis community. Thanks for taking the time here to chat with us. It's been a great chat here today. No, pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys, and thank you for tuning into this edition of Aussies Only. I hope you enjoyed Daniel Buberus. We'll definitely keep an eye on his journey and the Project 6 Foundation. Once again, p6f.org if you'd like to check them out and help out. Check out Latour Tennis as well, latourtennis.com. Shop their latest Dig 3 collection. And make sure to head over to thefirstserve.com.au if you'd like to tune into any of our previous episodes of Aussies Only. We've caught up with Luke Saville, Daria Gavrilova, Mark Polmans, James Duckworth, Ellen Perez, Storm Sanders, just to name a few. So make sure to check those episodes out for your weekly fix of Australian tennis. Thanks to The First Serve. You've been listening to Aussies Only, part of the First Serve, your home of tennis. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.